you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this time where we can come together, where we can be in your word and learn more about your will for our lives and learn more about your servant David. We pray that you would bless this time, that you would fill this place with your spirit, that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the story of David, at his heart, which the Bible describes as a heart after God. And so the first week we looked at Acts 13, 22, where Saul describes David as a man after God's own heart. And we saw how David's heart was in rhythm with God's heart, that he was walking in step with God. Next, we looked at the story of David and Saul and the Philistine giant from Gath, Goliath. And we saw that David had a courageous heart, a heart that boldly trusted in the promises of God rather than being distracted by the giants in his life. And last week, we looked at the story of David and Jonathan, at their princely chesed love for one another, this love of loyalty. And we talked about how that friendship should be a part of our lives too. And today, we're going to look at David's humble heart. In order to do that, I'd like to share with you an image, but before it gets up on the screen, I have to give you a little bit of forewarning. It's not particularly impressive. In fact, as you look at it, you'll probably think, man, this is kind of a barren image. What can we get out of this? But I think as we look at the story, we're gonna see that this really is the central image of the story. So could we get that image up on the screen? Here, we see a cave in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, as you can see, this is a pretty barren wilderness. There's not a whole lot of green there. And so, I think it's important that we picture this cave. Now, I'm not claiming that this was the cave that David stayed in. I haven't the foggiest. In fact, it's probably not. But I think picturing this barren, humble cave can give us a little insight into David's heart, especially when we look at this story from 1 Samuel chapter 24. But before we dive into this cave, before we dive into this story, I think it's important that we set a little bit of background because a lot has happened to David since we last saw him. When we last saw David last week, he was just saying goodbye to his dearest friend, Jonathan, and he was going to flee from the wrath of King Saul who was seeking his life. Now, we're not really sure how long this period of time lasts where David is on the run from Saul. But most scholars suggest that it was something like seven years. Seven years that David was constantly fearing for his life, that he was constantly on the run. And throughout those seven years, we see kind of tragedy after tragedy taking place to David. It starts right away. When he first flees from the wrath of Saul, he goes to a family of priests nearby and asks them for supplies for his journey. 
And naturally, as the right hand of the king, they acquiesce, they give him what he asks for, including the sword of Goliath. And he flees off into the wilderness, and when Saul hears about it, he orders that this entire family of priests be slaughtered. And so David feels that he has their blood on his hands. Because Saul is seeking his life in Israel, David will flee to a foreign country. In fact, he'll go to the city of his greatest enemy, Goliath. He'll go live in Gath, and while he's there, he'll pretend to be insane so that he can survive. He'll take his mother and his father, and he'll hide them in Moab, again in a foreign country, so that they'd be protected from Saul. He'd save a city from a Philistine invasion, only to hear from God that those same people he saved would willingly betray him to Saul. David, for seven years, is on the run, never wondering, always wondering where his next meal is going to come from, where he's going to lay his head next. And so when we picture David in a cave like this one, it's important that we picture him as a man who has practically nothing. This man who has been promised a throne sits instead in the gloom of a cave. This man who has been promised power has found himself powerless as he roams the wilderness aimlessly, fleeing from a wrathful, unjust, king. This man who has been promised glory, glories only in being able to draw another breath as his enemies surround him, as death haunts his every step. Yes, when we picture this cave, we're picturing a man who has been promised everything but is nothing. And so when we read this story in 1 Samuel 24, we should almost get a whiff of what seems like divine intervention. Saul has been scouring the wilderness searching for David. Anytime a rumor of David has popped up, he's carried his army out with him to go and strike him down, to seal the throne for himself and his family. And in the midst of his travels, he realizes that he has to take care of some natural business. And so rather than shaming himself in front of his soldiers, he stumbles across a cave and he enters into it to take care of his business. What are the chances that Saul would stumble into this one particular cave? where the man whose life he is seeking lies in wait. You can see this from David's soldiers, right? From his mighty men. Men whose lives are also on the line, who if they are found, they will be executed. They come up to David in the midst of the dark cave and they whisper into his ear. I can only imagine that their lips must be right over his shoulder so that the sound doesn't echo through the cave. David. 
David, now's your chance. Hasn't God promised the throne to you? Hasn't he said that you will place all your enemies under your feet? Now is your chance. This man who has been seeking your life, who has been trying to kill you, who wants you dead, here he stands. Take the throne, David. Now's your moment. God has given him into your hands. Hearing these words, David quietly creeps through the cave, inching closer and closer to Saul as the cave becomes closer and closer to being a tomb. As he stands in the darkness behind Saul, holding his breath, he can hear Saul's breathing, totally unaware of the death that is lurking right behind him. He unsheathes his knife, raises it. But rather than striking down his enemy, this man who has persecuted him, who has pursued him, who has tried to kill him again and again and again, David takes his knife and cuts a small strip off of Saul's robe. And even that causes David to feel this deep shame. Because David recognizes something about his life, something that can often be hard for us to grasp. David recognizes that David is not the master of David's fate. David recognizes that he's not the greatest thing since sliced bread. David recognizes that he's not even the king. Saul is. David recognizes that he's not God. In this moment, we see David's humility. We see that David has his priorities right. Yes, God has promised him the throne, but then whose job is it to put David on the throne? God's. It is God's job to fulfill his promises, not David's. It is God's job to dole out life and death and judgment, not David's. And so David's humility his understanding of his situation, where he sits in the hierarchy of creation, forces him to wait. The world looks at this situation and says, David, you had your opportunity at the tip of your blade and you let it pass you by. But David says, no. Far be it from me to make myself God. This is the Lord's anointed. It's God's job to take care of him. If we were to continue reading in 1 Samuel 24, it would seem like a happy ending to this story. Saul exits the cave, 
And David follows behind him, and he displays the cloth that he has taken from his robe, showing that he has been merciful, that he is humble, that he's never sought anything but good for Saul. And in fact, Saul is so moved by this that he breaks down weeping. He's filled with guilt and shame because he knows that he has unjustly persecuted David, that he has unjustly sought his life. And Saul even proclaims for all to hear, surely, David, you will sit upon the throne. And he goes on his way, leaving David in peace. But sadly, that peace will only last for a moment. In the very next chapter, we'll see Saul again pursuing after David. We will again see him trying to kill David. We will again will see David on the run, fleeing this unjust king's wrath, sleeping in caves. And so when we picture this scene of the cave, I think it really captures David's humble heart. Because what we're picturing when we picture this cave is a king who is traded in a palace for the bowels of the earth. You see, if we were to enter into this particular cave in the Engedi wilderness, we'd find something rather interesting we'd see that this particular cave was actually a tomb. A place where all human power and glory was done away with. Where there was only rot and decay. And while David may not have rested his head in this particular tomb, it's all too easy for us to picture this humble king sleeping where only the dead ought to reside. And at least for me, that image can't help but to provoke thoughts of another humble king, another humble heart. This king too would wander the wilderness He'd be offered power and glory and riches and honor, things that only God could give. And he tossed them right back in his tempter's face, trusting in his Father's will for his life instead. This humble heart would also be surrounded by scoffers, by people who sought his life. And he too would have the power to destroy them. All he had to do was raise his hand and utter the command and the hosts of heaven would flock to his defense. But instead, he allowed them to beat him, to strike him, to raise him up on a torturous throne of wood.
this humble heart was the Lord of life. And yet he willingly submitted himself to death's cold embrace. Trading in the heavenly halls for a dark, cold tomb. And yet through it all, this humble heart trusted the will of his father. He walked in the way that his father wanted him to do. And yes, he knew the end of the plan. He knew what was in store. He knew what was going to be won. But then he also knew what he was going to suffer. Rejection, betrayal, suffering, pain, torture, death itself. Jesus humbled himself. The Lord of all creation, the one through whom all things were made, took on that brokenness, took on that suffering, humbled himself to the point of being nothing, to the point of lying dead in a tomb. But three days later, his trust in his Father would be rewarded. For this image of a tomb with the stone rolled away would be his reward. And he would be exalted so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The humble king would be exalted. In his empty tomb would be the promise of life everlasting, of exaltation for all believers in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Today, as I said, is a high festival of the church year, All Saints Day. It's why there's white pyramids, why I'm wearing a white stole. And on this day, it's interesting, I actually think we're forced to grasp our own humility, our own sense of belonging in the hierarchy. Because yes, on this day, we joyfully remember loved ones. Men and women even children of faith who lived out that faith, who trusted in God's promises. But we also mourn their passing. And we're forced to wrestle with the fact that we're not God. Because as we look at the plan, as we look at the people we have lost, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors. It's all too easy for us to think, why God? What's your plan? In the midst of inoperable brain tumors, of car accidents, of friends taken from us far too early, we're forced to recognize that we're not in control that we are not the masters of our own fate, that we're not 
God. But, as we see in the story of David, as we see in the life of Christ, as we see throughout the church's history, God is a God who keeps his promises. And the promises that he has for our departed loved ones, the promises that he has for you and me are promises of resurrection. The promise that one day our tombs will look exactly like this, open and empty in the light of the sun. That one day he will return to make all things right. That all the dead will be raised. That those who have humbly trusted in his promises will be raised to everlasting life. That we will be reunited with friends and neighbors, with mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. That we will dwell in his presence for all eternity and that death will be destroyed forever. That is the promise that we humbly cling to on this day. The promise that God will do what he has promised and that he will raise us up on the last day. That he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that with David, with all the saints, we will dwell in the victorious presence of our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.